This has been a hell of a couple of weeks in the arenas of news, politics, and media. From the bombshell anonymous New York Times op-ed piece allegedly written by a senior Trump administration official to the publication of the new book Fear by legendary investigative reporter Bob Woodward to the resignation of CBS CEO Les Moonves as the latest high-level target of the Me Too movement. If there's any one person whose opinions and insights into these things and these crazy times would make him a superb interviewee for this podcast, it is this week's guest. Our guest, one of my favorite American newsmen, recently retired from his position as a leading executive running the highly respected news division of CBS Radio after a stellar career. He was named Vice President CBS News Radio in January of 1998. He was responsible for CBS News Radio's operations worldwide, including news gathering and programming and its relationship with its thousands of affiliated stations around the country. During his tenure at CBS Radio News, the network received dozens of national and international awards. He was personally honored with Talkers Magazine's Lifetime Achievement Award, as well as the extremely prestigious RTDNA John F. Hogan Distinguished Service Award, which recognizes an individual's contributions to the journalism profession and freedom of the press. Prior to joining CBS Radio News, our guest was the director of news and programming for WCBS AM News Radio 88 in New York City between 1987 and 1997. During that time, the station achieved record ratings and was honored with many national and local awards for excellence in reporting. He graduated from Rutgers University in 1966 with a degree in American history. During the next half hour, we'll be talking about the New York Times piece, Donald Trump, Les Moonves, the Me Too movement, as well as the state of journalism, and a whole lot more. Our guest this week is Harvey Nagler. Welcome to the Michael Harrison Interview, the weekly podcast from Podcast One for media freaks, pop culture aficionados, political junkies, and the philosophically curious. Thank you for downloading this program from Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, and the Podcast One app, and for following our Tuesday tweets announcing the names of our weekly guests. To sign up, it's at MH interview. I can be reached directly via email at michael at talkers.com. If you find this show to be of interest and value, please subscribe to it as well as giving it a positive five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I'll be presenting an uninterrupted conversation with former CBS News Radio Vice President Harvey Nagler. But first, a very quick programming reminder. Podcast One is the leading destination for the best and most popular TV and film podcasts. This exciting platform has teamed up with the Collider Network to bring you a number of shows, including one-on-one with Christian Harloff, where he interviews actors, directors, and more. Podcast One also has two-time Survivor contestant Rob Susternino, with his show Rob Has a Podcast, in which he covers all of your Survivor, Big Brother, and Amazing Race needs. Don't miss out on all of the AfterBuzz TV 
TV podcasts. They cover it all. To find all of these shows and more, go to podcastone.com or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Okay, here we go. An uninterrupted conversation with one of the most respected names in broadcast journalism, Harvey Nagler. Harvey, thank you for joining us on the podcast. I uh, I imagine that, one, you're enjoying retirement, but, two, knowing you, you're hardly retired, and, three, you probably are finding it uh, interesting to be observing what's going on in the media and the news these days from your new perspective. Tell us about it. Boy, you are right on all three counts. Um, I'm enjoying retirement, uh, doing a little consulting along the way, but not very much. Um, but doing some um, fascinating day to day to find out what's going on uh, in the news, as I'm sure everybody uh, is uh, looking at it and not believing what you hear from day to day. And, uh, you know, what's going on in the media is also um, fascinating uh, the way it's all playing out. One of the questions that I'm often asked, and a lot of people are asked, as a matter of fact, I saw Dan Rather recently interviewed about it, and he was asked it, do these times seem different than any we've seen before? Are these worse than ever before, more dangerous than ever before, or is this just because it's now and we're feeling it more intensely? Well, surprisingly, um, it's not worse than ever before. If you look back at the time of the American Revolution and in the 1800s, there was a lot of animosity going on in uh, the country at the time with uh, people being more polarized uh, at that point in time. But clearly, in recent years, I don't think the country has ever been more polarized than it is today with people not listening to each other and, and, and taking stands one way or the other and not looking in the middle to try to find compromises that would be good for the country as a whole. Interesting you say people not listening to each other. That's what I find to be the the marked difference between these days and other days, at least that I've lived through, is that there seems to be a wall uh, between the poles that uh, minds are made up. And I find a lot of people are invested more than just in terms of their intelligence. Their egos are invested in uh, their side winning. Kind of interesting. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. And, uh, you know, to some extent, then uh, I, I hold, I think, uh, the media a little bit responsible uh, for part of that, um, because, um, you know, whether it's on the left or on the right, um, that uh, people sometimes are not looking for the other side of the issue and saying my side is right and coming up with uh, facts or so-called facts to bear out uh, their argument and not looking for the other side, and I think that's um, very un- very unfortunate. It seems like um, many folks and organizations are seeking victory at the expense of, or even as opposed to, truth. Seeking victory. Okay, ha, we got them. Oh, yeah, it's out of context, but what the heck? <laughs> well, well, you know, the, the, the problem is uh, I, I think that uh, Americans as a whole um, look to um, their publications or their broadcast media to uh, verify uh, the opinions that they already have. So um, whether it's Fox on the right or MSNBC on the left, um, you, you go and you listen and you read what supports the arguments that you have already made. And if you go to Fox or if you go to MSNBC, 
they are going to say, uh, yes, Michael, you're absolutely right in, in, in your opinion, and, and, and this is how, we, you know, to back it up. And uh, we're, we're not looking at other arguments or looking down the road to see exactly uh, if there are other arguments that don't back up those arguments or, or, it's, or listen, as you point out, to what someone else is saying and say, hey, maybe they have a point as well. This confirmation of people's uh, predisposed uh, uh, positions uh, seems to have evolved since, at least again in our lifetimes, the media tends to target audiences as opposed to attract audiences based upon their level of journalism or their level of entertainment. It's actually a premeditated plan to target people and affirm their opinions. And, uh, and, and that comes from, I guess, a, a heightened state of competitiveness and commercialization. What are your thoughts? Boy, uh, you know, and just take that to the next step and let's put it right out there. It's about making money. And, uh, you know, what Fox found out and uh, was extraordinarily successful is that uh, if they became the spokesman for the right, and then MSNBC found out later on the left um, that their ratings would increase. And clearly, once their ratings are increased, the advertising dollars went up. Um, and it was beneficial from a financial perspective um, to, um, to hold these views and to espouse these views and to program to the base. And that's exactly what, what they're doing, which, you know, is, is great for those media companies, but I think for the well-being of the country and for the well-being of democracy, I'm not sure that's a good thing. Do you think that there's any way back to a uh, more... Uh, moderate ground in terms of uh, journalism companies, news companies, news organizations uh, operating on a certain level for pride uh, as opposed to purely for the profit uh, and survival motive? Well, let's be clear about it. There are a number of news organizations, and I would count CBS among them, who I believe are um, down the middle and who do not take positions uh, one way or the other. Um, and I think that, um, you know, there are a number of uh, organizations, news organizations, that are doing their best to try to be um, as objective as they possibly can. And, I, and I, think, I think they succeed. I'm not sure they get the credit for it uh, that they're entitled to, um, that people give them credit for it. Uh, but clearly there are a number of news organizations um, who are trying to do the best job that they, they possibly can in, a, in what is obviously a very difficult environment um, because of the politics of, of what's happening in our, in our country. I guess uh, part of my question then is, do you think that there's a, um, a viable market for that type of journalism? Did, is, is there, are there enough people in our fractionalized population who, one, like intelligent stuff, you know, is the intelligent or are the intelligent a viable niche and are the open-minded a viable niche at this point? I, I absolutely believe so. I think, um, you know, there is a, uh, a large number of people in that middle um, who are looking for uh, what we could define as objective news and, and, and get both sides of the story. And I think uh, there's a lot of that out there, and I, and I think that's going to be successful. You know, I, 
I may be looking through it through rose-colored glasses, but I think at some point, um, and I can't tell you when that's going to be, but I, and I hope it's going to be soon, that people are going to realize um, that uh, we do need to get back to a point where we can talk and listen to each other and, and, and understand the viewpoints of the other side. And I, and I think that's, that's going to happen in the not-too-distant future because I, I don't see us continuing down the road that we're going for a long time. I think that is an affront to democracy. You know, when you see that the press is vilified the way it is uh, by some quarters, I think that is just horrendous for our country when, when we do that, you know, considering the fact that there are literally thousands of journalists out there who are doing, trying to do the right thing every single day. And in some cases, God forbid, giving their own lives for democracy. And I don't think we realize that uh, or take that into consideration. And there's a lot of tremendously objective and factual news being reported by um, almost every one of the companies we've mentioned, including those that do target audiences for profit. It's not that everything is a lie. Everything is distorted. So I, so uh, when the well, press... Well, you are absolutely correct. Um, you, you know, reg- even if the media company... Uh, does have a perspective on the news. There are individuals in all of those companies uh, who are trying to do the right thing. Um, you, know, you know, I think part of the problem that we face is that there's clearly, and, and it's not well understood by the population at, at large, is that there's a distinct difference from being a journalist and being a host of a radio or television show. Mm-hmm. A journalist's responsibility, in my view, is to report the news as objectively as they possibly can. But you and I know, and it's, you know, it's clear, that hosts of radio shows who are talking about the news have a point of view. And sometimes I think the audience confuses the journalist, the definition of a journalist and the definition of a host. Uh, and many of the hosts will admit to you that they're not journalists, they're hosts, they have a point of view, and they, and they don't feel any responsibility to distinguish. Uh, right, and that's the, the key. Two. The key, Harvey, is distinguishing it. Uh, especially, what you're saying is especially true when the journalists or the reporters share the same platform as the commentators yep. and the hosts. So the, so unless it is clearly demarcated what the boundaries between the two, as in regular news pages in a newspaper and then the op-ed page and the newspaper's clearly marked editorial, um, people may not know that. But I'll tell you something I believe. This is just my own opinion. I think that even if you are a host, even if you are a commentator, an opinionator, a pundit, you are obligated to speak what you believe to be true. The difference between a lie and being wrong is intent. Just because you're wrong doesn't make it a lie. But if you endeavor to deceive for the sake of victory or ratings or pandering, then I think you've gone over the line. What are your thoughts? Well, you're absolutely right. It's kind of interesting because um, this past spring, uh, I was a... uh, invited uh, to Dallas to talk to the radio uh, talk show group. And um, my comments uh, were exactly what you talked about. It was, 
you as talk show hosts, and I'm, and I'm sure that most of those in the audience were uh, right-wing talk show hosts uh, who espoused that perspective. Uh, you know, I said that you folks have an obligation to try to bring the country together, that we are so polarized, and the reason that we're so polarized is because, um, y- you know, on, on, on talk shows, uh, whether it's on the right or on the left, uh, where, you know, you only hear one perspective. And it's your obligation uh, to, to, to look at both sides of the issue. And surprisingly, uh, right after I spoke, uh, Glenn Beck spoke and said exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, Well, you know, the feeling of most of the hosts are one. Yeah, it's easy for you to say, but my ratings will go down because the core will turn on me. And two, my station will get angry at me for not preaching to the choir. It, it's not that they have the choice in many cases, and that further complicates the issue. Well, I don't know if it's a case of not having a choice. Um, I think um, in, in doing a talk show and getting ratings, um, you know, Rush Limbaugh was one of the first who realized that it's entertainment. It's not a political perspective, per se, but what you're doing is entertaining your audience, regardless of who the audience is. And if you can do that in a way that um, speaks to them and they understand uh, what you're saying and want to listen to you because you're going to be, your ratings will not necessarily suffer um, as a result of, of doing that. Um, you know, one of the uh, things, and we can get into it later, uh, you know, I was sort of privileged to work at CBS for close to 30 years. And during that time, during most of that time, um, Leslie Moonves was, um, uh, ran the company. And for just about as long as Leslie was running the company, I heard him talk every single year during that time. And the one thing that he espoused, and to his credit and to his leadership, is that it's all about content. It's all about content. And if you can make that content uh, so that people listen and are entertained and it's interesting and exciting and it's smart and it's intelligent, um, you're going to win. So I'm not sure that it's necessarily, well, uh, you know, my audience is sort of leans to the right a little or leans to the left, and therefore that's the way I've got to go. I think the bigger issue is whether your content is something that people want to listen to. And I think, you know, that that goes as far as entertainment is concerned, and it goes as far as journalism and and news stations and and all of our our radio stations. If you have content that's compelling and interesting, um, people are going to gravitate and are going to want to listen to you. And if, if, if your content is as dull as dishwater, um, forget it. Doesn't matter you what you, it doesn't matter what your point yep. of view is. I agree with you. Um, I uh, I agree. I fear that some people uh, to whom the talent answers are not that aware of these things. There seems to be in the corporate world a cookie cutter mentality, and often uh, simple recipes and formula are looked to uh, uh, execute. 
and uh, and the fact that it always takes time to build an audience and time doesn't be it doesn't seem to be something that anybody, whether it's an individual or a corporation, seems to have anymore. Time <laughs> has become more valuable than Bitcoin. <laughs> it's <laughs> well, Bitcoin had its ride and then it went down the went down the tubes. But you, you know, you're, you're absolutely right that um, companies and corporations. Um, you know, want instant success. Yes, they do. And, and we know on stations, you know, that are as popular today, like The Fan, that it, it doesn't happen overnight, um, that it takes time. It takes time to build an audience. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, marketing um, your station or your podcast or whatever it may be is, um, is terribly difficult in a, in a, in a media-filled atmosphere in, in, in which we live, far more difficult um, than than it than it was years ago. I mean, what do you got? Half a million podcasts out there these days. Yeah, I mean, uh, I kind of I kind of look at half a million podcasts out there these days as uh, not being all that consequential to mainstream and big time media any more than suddenly back in the fifties the boom in home movie cameras presented any kind of a threat or dent in the processes of Hollywood or uh, Sandlot baseball, uh, if it exploded, would change the nature of uh, Major League Baseball, other than maybe having more talent coming up from the grassroots to choose from. But beyond that, uh, I always believe the cream rises to the top and it'll always be a pyramid. It'll always be narrow at the top of any uh, food chain in entertainment. Um, You mentioned CBS uh, and Moonves. Let's get that out of the way real quick, because I want to get back to the New York Times and the journalistic uh, aspect of our conversation. What do you think this whole Me Too thing with Moonves, which is breaking as we're speaking, uh, will uh, mean to our culture and to CBS? Well, I I think our culture is already talking uh, very loudly um, that um, this Me Too era that we're in, um, that uh, y- you need to be, um, th- th- there's no room for doing some of the things uh, that he's alleged to have done and others have alleged to have done. I don't know whether he did them or not. There's a uh, CBS investigation that's going on that will uh, determine that. But clearly there's uh, no room for anything like that, and I think society today is um, not very forgiving uh, for anybody who may have uh, done things that were wrong, uh, regardless if it was yesterday or last year or 10 years ago or even 20 or 30 years ago. So, um, you know, I think we're in a very different era, and I think um, there's no forgiving today for uh, for people who may have uh, done things that were wrong. You know, what I find very interesting is how CBS News is covering it as if it were a separate entity. They, they actually, uh, from my view, I don't know what your view is, they seem to be covering it very objectively without restraint. What do you think? Ab- absolutely correct. I mean, um, you know, news divisions, um, uh, by and by, just like the New York Times and its op-ed situation, um, are in theory, and as we, as you're pointing out, in reality, are separate units. And news divisions should not, under any circumstances, um, change their policies just because they're under the same corporate letterhead. Um, and CBS has been very upfront in reporting every detail about what's going on in its uh, 
corporate levels and even within its own news division. Um, so, uh, you know, clearly they seem to be doing uh, the right thing in the, in the way that they're reporting it. Switching back now to the to the news at hand, um, Donald J. Trump, President Trump, uh, has uh, among the many aspects of his assault on the press uh, put forth the proposition <laughs> that anonymous sources should no longer be part of journalism. My reaction to that is, give me a break. You can't have journalism without anonymous sources. And the credibility of the platform, the credibility of the reporter is what is then transferred to the credibility of the source. But without without protecting sources, uh, what do you got? A bunch of press releases and propaganda. So there'd be no investigative journalism uh, without anonymous sources. And without protecting sources, uh, if you disagree, when, when, when I throw the ball back to you, you can say so. But now, uh, ironically, the the biggest story I remember in my lifetime from an anonymous source has been this op-ed piece in the New York Times. So uh, this is really dramatizing this question. And uh, I'd love to know your take on the whole thing. Well, I mean, to me, it's pretty clear. Um, The credibility of the New York Times, like the credibility of Bob Woodward, is in, in my mind, unquestioned. Um, it would seem to me, without knowing who the individual is, that I will take that the Times had an obligation and a right to print uh, the op-ed piece. I cannot believe that the Times did not do what they should have done in vetting this individual, knowing who it is, and saying, yes, this is an individual um, who speaks with such authority that we have an obligation to publish it. I will be very surprised if um, that doesn't turn out to be the truth. And we may not know it this week or next week or next month, or maybe as in the case of Watergate, you know, 20 20, 30, 20 years later. Right. It might even be a group of individuals. It might be a conspiracy, not to become a conspiracy theorist, but maybe there are several involved. Well, th- there could be, but I, but I am convinced, and I, uh, you know, uh, uh, that the New York Times had every reason, every legitimate reason running that op-ed piece. Mm-hmm. And, and my answer to people who say they're making it up, the, the true Trumpites who say it's a lie, I say that's impossible. Well, you know what, Michael? Uh, you know, I got a call from a close friend of mine on Saturday who propositioned that that, you know, was a possibility. And I thought that was the funniest thing I right. had ever heard. Yeah. Because I cannot believe in my wildest imagination that the Times actually did that. There is way too much at stake. Yes, that's for the point. Its credibility, it would be destroying, destroying all the credibility right. that the Times has built up over hundreds of years. If that was ever the case, so right. let's just put that out, okay, of, the, good, good. out of the picture. Because but I, but there I, are I people out there saying there are people saying it. That's why I brought it up. There are right. no, people saying I mean, that. Yeah, I, I mean, I was shocked. Uh, I, you know, it was sort of like I. I broke out in gales of laughter when when I heard that because it is inconceivable to me. Okay, well we that both that agree on that. <laughs> now the the question that is debatable, uh, I I I think, is uh, this question of anonymity. Uh, but I think it's more to the point of the individual and not to the newspaper. It's up to the individual to decide whether he or she 
um, should remain anonymous, whether he or she should come out and say it was me and I'm resigning, and uh, that's a whole other ball of wax. I'm not sure how that individual can make the distinction in saying I'm going to support the person who's employing me, the President of the United States, to say, yes, you can do this, and no, I'm not going to let you do this thing or cover things up or ignore what you have to say. Um, I, 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 I have some real concerns well, just because in fact yeah. that, and I think that's a, a, a reasonable uh, discussion to have. But on, but on the point of whether the Times should publish it or not, there's no question in my mind that it had every right and every obligation to do so. Well, just because somebody does something that's the right thing to do doesn't mean necessarily that they're a good person or that the rest of their character is right. Uh, it, 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 there are good bad guys and bad bad guys. I mean, just watch The Godfather. You start rooting for certain killers over other killers. So, uh, you know, the whole concept of honor among thieves is a very fascinating aspect in human psychology. So uh, when, the, when the issue comes up as, well, if somebody has a credibility, to tell the truth about how they're protecting the nation from Donald Trump. Why are they still there supporting the basic operation? Well, because maybe they want to have that job at the White House. Maybe they're not so perfect, and they're at conflict with their own uh, yin and yang in terms of the, their good angels and their bad angels. Uh, th this is a fascinating uh, exploration into human psychology and um, the kind of people that are appointed to government jobs, especially at that level. They don't always see things clearly. They look out for their own backsides as well. So, Well, I, I sort of look at it, Michael, that if you, if you have somebody who works for you and they don't, they don't do what you want them to do, um, then they should either leave the company or, you know, if at the very least need to have a conversation with you that say, Hey, Harv, uh, I know this is the policy that you want to espouse. I know this is a strategy that you've got going forward. But I don't like it, and I, and I disagree with it, and here's why. I, I don't think that you can pick and choose, if you're working for the president, which policies you uh, will go along with and those that you won't. I mean, I think that's, that's, that's really uh, heavy stuff. And... Uh, it's going to be, a, as you point out, a debate that's going to go on for a long time until we, A, find out uh, who it was and whether it comes to the to a head and whether it's sooner or maybe even much later. Mm -hmm. Interesting with Trump. I, I, I mean, you often hear people say, you know, his policies are working. There are some things that he's doing yeah. that's working. And my answer yes. to that is when the book of Trump is written, the ends will, uh, will the proof will be in the pudding. He, he might go down in history as a great president. Maybe not. All of his faults will be looked at as quirks or all of his faults will be looked at as terrible, deadly, you know, tragic errors. Um, but I suspect that the inconsistency of his conduct on a day-to-day -day microscopic level could be getting under the skin of the people who do believe in the major policies. And, and, and I've seen many times in my life people who are dedicated to a boss, dedicated to a patriarch, a matriarch, a, a leader, doing everything they can to protect them from their own weaknesses and cover for them and, and still believe in the main cause. This is on an extreme level, but it, it isn't that unusual a syndrome. No, it's not unusual a syndrome, but, you know, from my own personal perspective, um, you may, and I think that, as you rightfully pointed out, 
there are policies of Donald Trump that people agree with and are right for the country. But part of the problem is that some of those things get overshadowed by the tone that emanates uh, from the White House and the values and the language um, that is used to describe individuals who work for him. And, I, and I'm not sure in the long run um, whether that's the kind of message um, that should come out of the White House or should, in fact, um, you know, is good for our children. Are, are I, could, values- I couldn't agree with you more, Harvey. And, and, and what's being judged here is that aspect of the presidency that we call presidential demeanor, presidential behavior. Is a president the president of all the people, including his detractors and the loyal opposition, or is a president the president of the people that voted for him against the rest of the country? And that's what we are witnessing now. Yeah, and I think, think, as you point out, uh, you know, the history books will uh, figure out... uh, you know, what what side we should be coming down on on, on that point. In conclusion, what do you think is going to happen? Uh, you, you know, step out of the role of the objective uh, observer and a little subjectivity. How do you feel about it all? What do you, where do you think we're heading? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, what a tough question. Uh, you know, I have maintained uh, since the very beginning of the Mueller investigation that I was not smart enough to tell you how it's all going to come down. But the one thing that I have um, said all along from the very beginning is that something's going to come out of the Mueller investigation that none of us expect. And as we see in the indictments that have occurred, there's a lot of that that we never would, that we're saying, oh, gee, I never knew that was happening or that was going to come down. So, you know, to me, it's sort of like a two-faceted question. On the one hand, something's going to happen out of the Mueller investigation that's going to be a big surprise to all of us when it, when it comes down, I believe. And what the ramifications of that are going to be uh, are still unknown, but it will have a major effect on our, uh, in our country. And uh, when you have things like uh, the New York Times uh, op-ed piece, when you have the Woodward book, um, written by, you know, one of the best journalists around. Um, it's pretty clear that something is probably going to happen. It's going to take us down a, uh, a certain path. And I, I, as I said, I'm not smart enough to figure out how it's all going to end. You know, Donald Trump is somewhat of a Teflon president, or has been, and that all of um, the stuff that he's been talking about um, – he has his supporters he's, who, you know, are with him uh, down the road and continue to support him and continue to believe um, that he's doing the right thing despite uh, what people on the other side say. So, you know, I wish I could give you the answer and you could walk away and say, boy, you know, I'm, I'm glad that Harvey knows where we're going, but I'm afraid. I don't know the answer. (laughs) And admitting you're not smart enough to know all the answers is the first step to credibility in my book when it comes to everything from journalism to science. And there you have it. A conversation with former CBS Radio News Vice President 
Harvey Nagler. Thank you for downloading this program from Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, and the Podcast One app, and for following our Tuesday tweets announcing the names of our weekly guests. To sign up, it's at MH Interview. I can be reached directly via email at michael at talkers.com. If you find this show to be of interest and value, please subscribe to it as well as giving it a positive five-star review on Apple Podcasts. The Michael Harrison Interview. Thank you for listening. The Michael Harrison Interview is a presentation of Podcast One, produced by Good Phone Communications in association with Talkers Magazine, copyright 2018, all rights reserved.